Father, thank you so much that we could sing your praise and we ask, Father, that you would be glorified, not just in what we say, but in what we do and how we live, that our words and our actions would actually reflect our offering of ourselves as living sacrifices. We do that now, offer ourselves completely to you, ask that you would be leading us, teaching us, uh, convicting us, doing all that you need to do in order to make us more like your son or actually drawing us to your son. And Father, we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. It is an honor to be here, to be with you. This is the Simple Bible Church, uh, Makakilo Bible Church. And I mean that with the greatest compliment because that's the kind of church that we have, the Simple Bible Church. We just do things according to the scripture and we try to honor and uh, praise our Lord Jesus Christ. John Eliff is an amazing gift uh, and he is there rocking it today uh, for uh, just uh, teaching and exposing God's word. Did an incredible job. I got to watch him this morning and then get in the car and come here. So I, I'm actually, we're connected in that way. It was really a delight to hear him and to see him. Uh, very first time I've ever done a pulpit swap. So this is a new thing for me. Uh, so I'm here and he's there and uh, we're hoping that God's glorified in both ways. I'm going to have to step it up though after hearing his sermon. It was amazing. Uh, but uh, you are very, very blessed to have such a wonderful man as your expositor as well as your pastor. I hope you appreciate him. Do you? Uh, I hope you do. Yeah, he's amazing. Well, listen, uh, open your Bibles, if you would, uh, to Titus chapter 2. If you didn't get the outline, kind of maybe indicate that, and uh, you can kind of follow along with us. That'll help you to kind of track as we walk through the text together. But I wanted to kind of introduce what we're going to be talking about by uh, letting you know about the human fly. I don't know if you knew about him. He was an expert rock climber. Uh, now turned showman, and what he would do is he would go to a particular city, and with some uh, pre-publication and pre-notification, he would then climb these skyscrapers on the outside to draw a crowd and to, you know, make a little coin for himself uh, through this advanced publicity. And so on one occasion, thousands had gathered during a lunchtime. He usually began his climb at the morning rush hour, and then he would work his way up the building. So by the time lunch came around, he's about halfway up. And so there's thousands of people watching him make his way up this large building, and they observed him uh, kind of being stuck up there, not being able to get over a ledge. He kind of went to the right, and then he went to the left, and it didn't seem like he could make any progress. And then they saw him kind of almost make up his mind. And he began to reach for something that was farther up above on the ledge. And then they saw him actually take a leap. He leapt up to grab onto this object. And to their horror, he actually fell to his death. What was interesting about the scenario was that when the coroner opened his hand, what he had inside of his hand was a dirty cobweb. It looked exactly like cement. It looked like exa exactly like something that would be holding him, but it was actually something that was very fragile and covered with dust. And what's so sad about that story is that it symbolizes the daily plight of the American male today. It really does. We live in a society that's continually changing the role of man, have you noticed? And redefining the meaning of masculinity. And men are looking for something solid to hang on to. And all they get today, what's broadcast today, what's in the educational system today, is dusty, fake cobwebs. Nothing with any solidity at all. For centuries, society kind of embraced a somewhat biblical element of 
what the role of man was to be, handsome in continence, a ruler of his kingdom, a provider of his household, a great achiever, courageous warrior, a defender of his territory, protector of his wife and children, a decision maker. Now it's become a lot more complex. That's all changed because today a man must be good looking but not aware of it. He must be intelligent but not heady. He must be mechanical but not grimy. He must be masculine but not overmastering. He must be firm but not inflexible. He must be self-assured but not conceited. He must be loyal but not patronizing. He must be ambitious but not a workaholic. He must be aggressive. Are you worn out already? Aggressive but not pushy, gentle but not feminine, knowledgeable but not a show-off, agreeable but not a yes-man, generous but not extravagant, relaxed but not lazy, courageous but not foolish. That, that's pretty rough, isn't it? Some of you guys are going, that's it, I'm done. And now, today, with gender being intentionally rewritten into anything and to everything, uh, men are afraid and young men are confused. Confused. But Christ is not. Christ is not. Jesus Christ, who made this world, also created men, and he created women, and he made each of the two sexes, and let me emphasize only two, a specific detailed design. Now, if you're here this morning and you've submitted your life to Jesus Christ, then with that genuine regeneration, with that submission, comes a love and a submission to his word, the Bible. And with that desire for obedience that he has put in your heart will come a pursuit of his will, which, which then when it comes to his design for women and for men, you're going to want what he designed. You're going to want and desire that. And what you and I desperately need today is to study God's original blueprint, right? That comes from the scripture. It's found in God's word over the roles of men and women. Now, that's just what I did uh, back in the 1980s. I had the opportunity of being a college pastor of a struggling college ministry, and we started a series called Let the Men Be Men and Let the Women Be Women. Sounds creative, doesn't it? Interesting enough, uh, it was uh, an amazing opportunity, amazing series. God did some amazing things. And it just now, uh, one of the men who was in that group uh, actually became a publisher. He's publishing the Legacy Bible, and two years ago he asked me to write two books, Let the Men Be Men, Women Be Women, and they are designed for high school, college, and young marrieds. They're not a scholarship work. They're a biblical work, and if they can be an asset to you, great. But that's what we did, and they just are now published just this week, and it's, all of it's based on Scripture, and primarily it comes from Titus chapter 2. So if you're not there, please turn there, because Paul left Titus on the island in Crete to set things in order. You see that in Titus 1.5. And the Cretans were having a problem putting their beliefs into behavior. That was their problem. And that included Titus instructing the various age groups and sexes, men and women, in the church as to their role and to their proper God-designed behavior. So in chapter 2, Paul describes how each sex and how each age is to live out their faith in the midst of a secular, very secular culture. 
In verse 1, if you take a look at Titus chapter 2, he talks about sound doctrine. That's healthy doctrine. That's doctrine that's lived out. Doctrine that actually makes you like Jesus Christ. And then in verses 2 and 3, Paul describes the qualities for the over the 60 crowd to pursue. And then he calls the older women to train the younger women as to their design in verses 4 and 5. And then he describes God's role for young men in verses 6 through 8. And he calls Titus to God's design as well as he is a young man and he includes that with them. So verses 6 through 8 represent the male qualities the seniors in this room should already have down if you're a Christian. The young men are to pursue these qualities and all you single ladies, these are the traits that you should be having on your list as you look for the ultimate guy. Uh, these are the God's character goals for men that are found in verses 6, 7, and 8. What are they? Mentally, we are to be sensible. Visually, we're to be an example of good deeds. Theologically, three, we are to be pure in doctrine. Socially, we're to be dignified. And verbally, we're to be sound in speech. Now, don't panic. We're going to go through each one of them. Number one in your outline, mentally, men are to be sensible. Sensible. In Titus chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Likewise, Urge the young men to be sensible, very similar in the ESV. In order to be godly men, a Christian male must be a thinking man, a thinking man. He must make decisions using a spirit-controlled mind that is saturated in the Scripture. We must not like be the man who was hit on his head at work. Uh, the blow he received was so severe that they thought he was dead. So they called the mortuary and they brought him to the mortuary to prepare the body. And the next morning, he woke up and he sat up in the coffin. And he thought to himself, well, wait a minute, if I'm alive, what in the world am I doing in this satin-filled box? And if I'm dead, why do I have to go to the bathroom? It didn't make sense to him. He's totally disoriented. And even in our fast lane society, we are not to be the kind of people who refuse to live in a state of disorientation. We're to be not confused. Young men are not to live by their emotions, but by truth. And young men are to exercise common sense in all of life. The word sensible in the Greek comes from a, a root word which means safe and sound, healthy. It's used in Scripture to refer to sound judgment, common sense, and it's even translated in some of your uh, translations there, self-control. It has a reference to avoiding excess in every area of your life showing oneself to be self-restrained, constantly in the exercise of self-government. So sensibility is actually not a very glamorous virtue, but it's the very stuff of life. It's the very thing. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32, it says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Then he makes another comparison. He who rules his spirit, rules his spirit, in other words, your control of yourself, than he that captures a city. Uh, young men are not to be like Alexander the Great, right? You know about him. Conquered the entire world but couldn't conquer himself and died at the age of 33 in a drunken stupor. Amazing. Sensibly saved men are to be in control of themselves. Of themselves. They are to live a life marked with common sense wisdom. Is it important? It was to the Holy Spirit. Because in this particular book, the book of Titus, sensibility is the most repeated character quality in the entire letter. Sensibility. In fact, Paul repeats this quality in the short letter a total of five times as a character quality listed in there and states that elders, older men, young women, young men, and all believers are to live sensibly in the midst of an unthinking generation. 
Boy, does that not describe our day, an unthinking generation? The reason it is so often repeated is that the Christian community on Crete was not only having a hard time putting their beliefs into behavior, but also the Cretan society was actually encouraging its citizens to live without sensibility. So to get a real good picture of that, look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 of Titus. Chapter 1, 12 through 14, and see how difficult their society was. It says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is what? It's true. Now, in, in Southern California, we like the uh, congregation to respond to the pastor's question. So, so this testimony is Thank you very much. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths or commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? He's saying it was very difficult to live in that culture. Very difficult. Because the Cretan society was known for lying, not exercising any self-control over their speech. Evil beasts, not exercising any self-control over their behavior. Lazy gluttons, showing no control over their appetites and desires. Paying attention to myths. Basically, instead of listening to God's word, they're listening to human assertions. So instead of spiritually controlling their lives by obediently believing and heeding the word of God, they are living by their feelings, their desires, their thinking. We could add in our day, they're living by science or opinion or news. But the sensible young man must first be in control of himself. Be in control of himself. In fact, in order to direct his own life and lead others the way God expects. You know, we cannot live life like Christopher Columbus. You know about Christopher Columbus, right? So when he first discovered America, he didn't know where he was going. Second, when he got there, he didn't know where he was. And then when he got back, he didn't know where he'd been. How do you be like that? We can't be that way. Just like the orderly businessman who plans his day, or just like the construction worker, the workman who strives to do a better job using the blueprint, young men must live sensibly planning their life and following through in their life to accomplish God's will, which is found in God's Word. Practically, how does that flesh itself out? Sensibility. Well, that means that the sensible man has a game plan. One of the keys to living out the role of a man is to have a game plan, to set goals, to, through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of God's character, to focus some time in prayer, to focus some time in study of the Scripture, to, to give your heart to ministry, to those who are evangelizing and, and those you want to disciple and those you want to have mentor you and your future influences for God's glory. You want to set goals concerning your spouse and your children and your parents, thinking through what is most needed for them and what's best for them. You think it through. That's the sensible man. A sensible single man has learned that relationships are not merely based on appearance, but on character, on faithfulness, on reputation. In fact, Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Uh, a wonderful reputation. When looking for a life partner, a sensible young man searches for a woman who loves Christ more than she loves him. In fact, you look for a gal who is proven in ministry so she'll be able to function as a part of the church. You, you look for a gal who's proven in discipleship because that's what 
mothering and parenting is, is discipleship. And someone who's proven in living out her role as a daughter, so she'll be ready to fulfill her design for a wife. The sensible man knows where he's going. Listen, you know this is true. When you aim at nothing, you hit it every time, right? And a sensible person goes, I'm aiming at certain qualities, certain characters, certain habits, because I'm going to aim at those and at least get it some of the time. I'm, I'm going to spend and have measurable goals. I'm going to make sure they're achievable. I'm going to spend 30 minutes in the Word and Prayer. I'm going to encourage three people today. There's a specificity to pursuing sensible lifestyle. Biblical men, godly men, God's design for men is to be sensible. That's number one. Second quality that Paul points to in verse 7, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Number two in your outline, visually men are an example of good deeds. An example. Uh, visually. Uh, it's like a pace car, if you're into racing, that starts the auto race. Uh, the father has been chosen by God to lead his family by example. By example, to, to set the pace He's to show the way, set the pace by the example of his own life with Christ. He is not complacent about his role as a man or a dad, but he pursues it, setting a pace. He practices what he preaches. He lives before he lays down the law. He demonstrates before he demands. Unlike the obese doctor who's trying to tell you how to lose weight, Unlike the bald man who's trying to sell you hair restorer, the godly man recognizes that whatever he wants others to become in his own home, in his own family, the people he's trying to influence, he wants them to grow to be, he must be first. That's the example of good deeds. His influence is first seen through his own life example. Men are called to live every aspect of their lives as an example. And that word example there is tupos, which is where we get type from. It was basically a, a rock or a stone that was made with an impression so that it could make a coin or seal a document. Therefore, it becomes a pattern or an example to follow. And Paul's calling young men and Titus to show themselves to be spiritual models, examples that can be followed and imitated. You're, you're to be a spiritual die leaving an impression. And the challenge is this, what kind of impression are you making? Paul calls young men to be examples of good deeds. Examples. We know salvation is by grace through faith alone. We also know that faith without works is what? Dead faith. Therefore, the faith that saves is never alone, and saving faith will result in good works. In Ephesians 2.10, it actually tells you that God, before the foundation of the world, has already pre-chosen the good works that you'll actually walk into. This is an amazing promise. But that does not negate the fact that you are to be dependently obedient, to be empowered by the Spirit of God to work through you in order to actively produce good deeds. In other words, only God is good. Can I hear an amen to that? That's true. And the only works that can truly be good are those that are done for him, are you ready, and by him through you. Are you getting it? God through you. So good deeds are actions done for the glory of God and the power of the Spirit, painting and pointing to the person of Christ. It's so important to the Holy Spirit that the exhortation to do these good deeds is listed six times in Titus. 
In other words, they lived in a very corrupt culture. The more corrupt the culture, the stronger we are to be with good deeds. And what does he say? He says in Titus 2.14, be zealous for good deeds. In other words, be an enthusiastic fanatic for good deeds. Titus 3.1 says, be ready for every good deed. That means be willing and prepared for good deeds. Just get excited about good deeds. In fact, he says in Titus 3.8, engage in good deeds, which means busy yourself with good deeds. We don't do this. We don't actually busy ourselves and be zealous for good deeds. We're looking for opportunities to do good deeds, to put Christ on display. You're to go after it every day, pursuing good deeds. Now, when Paul wrote verse 7, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, he actually made it emphatic. And the Greek sentence actually reads this way, yourself showing a model of good works. It's as if the Holy Spirit wants to remind you how important this is. You, Titus, and you, young men, you make sure you do this. You do this yourself. The word translates show there is ongoing, so good deeds are not merely just a, a random occasion when you're at church, but this is a way of life. You're to be known for your good deed doing. Have a regular ministry in the church where you're responsible to be doing good deeds. Men who don't minister in the church don't understand the importance and impact of good deeds. You say, yeah, but I'm a leader now. Listen, Titus is an apostolic assistant. Some of you go, oh, he's a pastor. No, he was only there on Crete, you read the end of the book, for about six months. So he's there as an apostolic assistant, establishing churches, and then moving on. He is a high-up dude in the early church. And yet, Paul says, you, Titus, you make sure you're an example of what? Good deeds. So for him and for us, this is all of us. In fact, even your witness in the world is to have some good deeds as a part of it. What does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12? He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. He's talking about the lost here. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your what? Your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Both in the church and in the world, we are to be impacting others by the regular expression of good deeds. That's who we are. It's what we do. Not just the big upfront stuff, but the little ones. Listen, great occasions for serving God seldom come, but little ones surround you daily, right? And that's what good deeds are all about, expressing that. Now, there's a negative side to this, too. Men who exhort without example are like Pharisees. Uh, don't be the Pharisee father or the Sadducee son who don't practice what they preach. No, godly men instruct them in the word and impact them with good deeds. And hopefully the Spirit of God is doing a little punching in your heart. Uh, you're not merely looking for an occasional opportunity for good deed doing, but to become an example for others to follow. That's what Paul is telling Titus here. In this kind of culture, in a wicked culture, we need to be a model of good deed doing. In fact, he adds this third point, third character quality in your outline. Theologically, men are to be pure in doctrine. Pure in doctrine. Look at verse 7. He says in verse 7 that you're to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity or dignity. And what he's saying there is he, he actually means purity in doctrine. And that word purity or integrity means uncorrupt and free from taint. Men are to pursue truth that will not decay. 
uh, truth, God's Word. Our, our, our teaching is to be consistent in life and biblical in content. Uh, and Paul's addressing Titus, his apostolic assistant here, including him as a young man in this context. So to be pure in doctrine is for all men, so it's all of them together. And Titus already warned the men of Crete, and in Titus, in Titus 1.14, don't pay attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So Paul's calling all men to believe pure doctrine and to live biblical doctrine. Many of you know the importance of your timing belt for your car, and when your timing belt's off, your car kind of coughs and sputters and and is jarring along, right? Are you with me on that? That's what happens. Well, pure doctrine is like a, a, a well-timed timing belt. It, it keeps a man's spiritual life running smoothly and effectively. Those men who live by the timeless truths of the Bible have God's wisdom and strength to empower them. On the other hand, if the principles that you're living by are wrong or they're mixed or they're diluted, your spiritual timing will be off. You'll lack direction. You'll lack power. It's true. God wants you men to be passionately pursuing untainted truth. When Paul charges Titus here to be pure in doctrine, that pure is no corruption, that word purity or integrity, no spoiling, no leading astray. And you all know this, when white paint is mixed with a little bit of color, it's tainted, right? It's, it's mixed, it's not pure anymore. Uh, when you add a little water to your gasoline, it's dangerous, right? It could wreck your engine. Uh, it's the same with biblical truth. Doctrines to remain unmixed. You don't add human wisdom. You don't add secular business ideas. You don't add psychological concepts to biblical truth. It is no longer God's word, but a distorted word. It's not living and active. It's dead and lifeless. And though this is a little graphic, it's like serving brownies with a little tiny chunk of dog excrement in it. Right? It's tainted. You're like, I don't want any. That's what happens. Jesus warns us with these words in Matthew 15. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is what? Far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. And Jesus practically calling men to live what you learn, to behave what you believe. Avoid situations like, obey the law, son, while you constantly speed. Because you can't really do that on the H1 here. You just can't speak. You just more slow down or join the parking lot. Uh, listen in church, kids. Listen in church, but you never take notes and you're not paying attention. Or let your mother decide when you, God's called you to lead. Add to that practice of truth, you should move from devotionals to doctrine. From milk to meat. Uh, just uh, just as a, a steady diet of junk food will make you physically you know, dangerous, physically weak. So a steady diet of spiritual junk food will harm your spiritual life as well. God is calling you to pursue pure, undiluted truth. Move from the bib to the apron. Learn, learn to feed yourself. What steps are you taking to learn the Word of God? You're an incredible church here. I mean that. You're an incredible church. You have incredible opportunities to learn God's Word. Are you taking steps? When a man is pure in doctrine, then Scripture becomes his compass. Scripture becomes his filter, his food, his treasure, his lens through which you see all of life. All of life. Number four. Socially, 
Men are to be dignified. Anybody want to say they're dignified here today? I'm in big trouble, okay? I am. My grandchildren live in Kailua, all right? I'm just confessing. And my Hawaiian grandpa name is Cuckoo. And everybody that knows me say, that really fits you, Chris. Interesting enough, I do funny faces. I sing silly songs. I, uh, I make water balloons. I do crazy experiments with slime and soda. Uh, I'm always laughing. I'm narrating their building of sandcastles. I, I want my grandsons to know that I'm a man who loves the Lord, loves his word, but's really a fun guy. Right? So I get worried sometimes that I lack dignity. Dignity. Because there's nothing that I wouldn't do for those two boys. Nothing. Now, the word dignified is almost impossible to act out in a game of charades. How do you portray a quality that's a blend of humility, courtesy, seriousness, and respectfulness? I don't know. The difficulty in defining dignity is, doesn't make it any less important to understand in its practice. So verse 7, he says, the word dignified. It is a quality of life, you might want to write this down, that inspires respect. A brief survey of 1 Timothy 3 will tell you that dignity is required for an elder, a deacon, and women who assist deacons. And Titus 2 tells us dignity is a required quality for both older men and younger men. Both older and younger are to be dignified. It's not just you get older and now you're dignified. It's all of us. Dignified is a quality that commands respect. It earns the right to be heard. In fact, it is sincerely believable and it is seen as a clear in purpose Everybody knows when you're dignified who you live for. That's the point. Everybody knows. Being dignified doesn't mean that you don't smile. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy life. It doesn't mean you don't have a sense of humor. All right? It doesn't mean that. Being dignified is living with the constant awareness that you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You might want to write this down. It'll make it really simple. We are Christ dignitaries. Do you hear that word? Dignitary, dignified. That's what it means. We represent him. You live on earth as a citizen of heaven. You live life in the presence of God, in the fear of God. You live filled with the Spirit. Can I, can I help you with this? It's very important you get this. You want to live life serious about the Lord, his word, his mission, and his church. And are you ready? Here's the next caveat. And you don't want to live life serious about yourself at all. It's not about you, it's about him. And to be dignified means I'm about him and I don't care what you think about me, right? That's the point. So when you're watching TV and the referee makes an incredibly bad call against your team, costing them the championship, do you scream at the TV or do you drop to your knees in an attitude of prayer? <laughs> now that's a terrible illustration, absolutely terrible. It, it really doesn't have anything to do with dignity. I just wanted to say it. <laughs> Men, are you equally free to play with your kids or, and pray for your kids? That's the point. You pray for them, you play with them. You can joke with your teens and you can talk seriously with your teens and they accept you in both realms. That would be a dignified man. A dignified man. For dignity, you want to remember the three R's. You might want to write these down. This is what actually defines dignity or dignified. Respectful, responsible, representative of Christ. The three R's. Respectful, responsible, and representative 
of Christ on earth. Respectful, responsible, representative. Now, in certain translations, incorruptible or sincerity is listed in Titus 2, but it's not in the best text. So the fifth goal of the Christian man that, that Paul gives to Titus to give to the Cretans, the believers here, is number five, verbally, men are to be sound in speech. Verbally, men are to be sound in speech. Again, we're just working our way through the text here. And not only is he to be mentally sensible, visually an example of uh, good deeds, theologically pure in doctrine, socially dignified, but he needs to pursue the goal of being verbally sound of speech. Take a look at verse 8, would you please? That's what describes it. It says, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And that's how he concludes the section to young men. Today, we have pastors who cuss. But what is God's will for your talk, pastor or not? Well, you know what the Bible has to say about your speech. Take a look at Ephesians 4.29 there in your outline or in your Bibles. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as good for, say it, edification. You're building up according to the need of the moment. The timing is important as well that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't allow any worthless word to come from your mouth. Don't allow it. But only those that build up the hearer at the appropriate moment. Look at Colossians 4.6. He's talking about, again, in your dealings with the lost, but let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, making it tasty so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Your conversations on the patio today, hanging out with friends, your personal talk, your private talk, should be so gracious that people would think of Christ. Why? Well, look at Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Is our speech powerful, yes or no? It's powerful, yes. Be careful. Proverbs 12.25. Good words can make an anxious heart glad. I remember some conversations with my mom and my dad, single conversations that were life-shaping, life-challenging, set me down a whole new direction. Yet I can also recall saying things that the moment they came out of my mouth, I wanted to pull them back in. Anybody there with me? You're like, oh, 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 too late. It's out. And that's what he's talking about. A man's speech must be sound. Now that word sound is the Greek word hagias, where we get our English word for hygiene, which is exactly what I say to my wife every morning. Hygiene. Okay? But that's really not what he's saying here. He's saying that it means safe and clean words. Clean words. And Paul adds that this speech, these clean words, is to be above reproach. It's to be tested before you speak. We need to hesitate before we speak. This is really important for me to hear because people who are like me in this realm, we talk and then we think later. Okay, so understand in Psalm 39 verse 1, it says, I will guard my mouth as with a what? A muzzle. Wow. Psalm 141 verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Why? Ephesians 5 4, there must be no filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather of giving of thanks. So how do you guard your speech? Well, one of the keys 
is to depend on the Spirit of God and God's Word, over time develop the habit of talking less and listening more, <laughs> okay? Now, some of you are really good at that. Naturally, you have one of those introvert kind of personalities, so you think, you know, before, because you're always pondering. You're a good thinker. But some of you are just, you know, it's right out there, right? Anybody with me? You don't have to say amen, but I know who you are, okay? And it comes out. Well, the reason why you want to talk less or, and listen more is because you get, God gave you two ears and one mouth, right? Twice the listening, half the speaking, and interesting enough about that is that there's a reason why he did that. If you keep talking, the Bible actually says sin is inevitable. Sin is inevitable. What's he saying? Proverbs 10, 19. When there are many words, transgression is what? Unavoidable. He is considered prudent when he closes his lips. I mean, understand, you need to restrain your lips to be wise. The Bible says if you remain silent, are you ready for this? If you remain silent, like you're in a conversation with friends, and you don't say anything, everybody there will think you're smart. It's true. Look, look what he says in Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered what? Wise. He must be smart. Wow. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. Paul concludes the challenge to young men with this. It's Guarding our mouths is a challenging topic. There's much more to say with that. But one of the keys is talk less. And he says in verse 8, so that, why do you have to be sound in speech, healthy in speech, so that the opponent would be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. There's people attacking Christianity and the church all the time. And we want to be those who put them to shame by what we say careful what we say. Our words reveal our hearts. You know that, right? Our words are actually a channel into our heart, to see our heart. The Bible's very clear about that. And our speech is to reveal that our hearts have been transformed by Christ, regenerated, born again, made new. Our speech is a big part of our witness, and our words make Christians unique. When everybody else is swearing, you're sweet. When everybody else is crude, you're Christ-like. Our speech is to be so refreshing that those who are lost will have nothing bad to say about us. That's what he's saying. So why should Titus and the young men pursue all these five goals so that if the false teacher was to put Titus or the young men on trial, they would find no accusation against them. And what's exciting is that you can become this man. The Lord never commands you what he doesn't empower, and therefore his design for men and women is perfect, and you can taste of his blessings as you pursue this plan for you, especially with these final challenges. Here they are, final challenges. Letter A in your outline. Godly men take the lead. Godly men take the lead. Men are designed to be the head. I, we, we tell the men in Southern California all the time, this is shocking. We have men's events. We'll have a giant shoot fest. Um, we have an inordinate amount of police officers at our church. And so we'll have a giant thing where everybody comes and shoots guns. It's only men, all right, shoots guns. We have meat for lunch. No, no utensils, just pork and beef. And we just grab it and stick it on our plate. It's a, it's a man event. And what we say to those men at that event, two things. We say, we believe that men, God has called men to lead their homes and lead the church, and, and we tell them the gospel. Listen, 
men are to take the lead. By the power of the Spirit, you'll be a blessing to the church, respected in your homes, a fruitful witness in the world, but take the lead by pursuing these qualities of Titus 2. Demonstrating, living out an example of good deeds, visually, you know, being that sound speech individual, being sensible. Letter B, godly men become pure in doctrine. If you are, then you will make a commitment to get serious about studying the Word and about applying these, uh, these qualities. Th- this is really five days a week. Uh, really, what you have here is Monday, mentally sensible. Tuesday, visually, example of good deeds. Wednesday, theologically, uh, pure in doctrine. Thursday, socially dignified. Friday, sound in speech. You get the weekend off. No, that's when you practice. You practice them. But this is to be lived out. And no one's going to make it perfect till heaven. But you can make progress. If you're genuinely born again, you can make progress. And let her see, godly men must be in Christ. Uh, if you remain marginal as a man, no one will ever know for certain if you're in Christ or not. The only way to be assured believer is to live out Christ. The only way you can pursue these qualities, are you ready for this? The only way you can pursue these qualities is to be in Christ. You're separated from Christ because of your sin. And if you believe God became a man in the person of Christ, died on the cross by taking the punishment you deserve for your sin, then rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. If you turn from your sin in repentance and you rely on Christ by faith, you put your life in his hands. If your sin falls on the cross, then his righteousness can cover you. It's, it's, it's actually almost termed as the robe of righteousness. It's the, the robe you must wear to be in God's presence. And if you don't have his perfection that has been given to you by Christ, you cannot be in his presence, now or forever. But if you wear that robe by putting your faith in, in Christ and turning from your sin, allowing you to be right with God, empowering you to follow his word, And actually, you can begin to fulfill his design for men. And the challenge today is stop grabbing the the cultural cobwebs and become a man who's committed to truth and become the man that God created you to be. And all of God's men said, Amen. Amen. Let's turn to Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we've gathered again today and our singular goal was worship. And we understand worship, Lord, according to Romans 12, that it is a living sacrifice. That we're not just saying words or listening to a sermon, but we're actually saying, my life is yours. And if we have that heart that has been born again, a new internal man and woman, there'll be a desire in our heart to be obedient to your word, to willingly want to do anything you'd want us to do, and to offer ourselves all in, nothing held back. So we pray, Father, that our response would echo that heart, that it would be that we're offering ourselves to you and seeking to be obedient to your truth 
seeking to see these qualities begin to be lived out in our lives, even in a minor way, that there would be progress toward being the man that you called us to be. And Father, if there are any here this morning who don't know you, would you begin to soften their heart and that you would begin the process of drawing them to yourself and helping them to see that life only matters if, as it's related to you and eternal life is only possible as it's related to you. And so we pray, Father, that you would begin to draw them, that they would be sick of their sin, they would hate their sin, and they would want to be cleansed and forgiven and washed and made new. And Father, then they could begin to see you live through them and empowering them to become the man you desire them to be. May the ladies in this room encourage the men around them, not jab them with their elbows, but Father, to, to love them and, and prod them and, and esteem them for the progress that they're making. And Father, may we be investing into the next generation so that as things are even more confusing for them, that there'd be greater clarity onto what it means to be a man of God and a woman of God. And we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. That's our whole desire, is that you would be pleased, that you would be exalted, that you would be lifted up. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.